Commentary is for general information purposes only. Clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. So what are we talking about? Why do you send that freaking thing in Teams? I thought we're supposed to use Teams, isn't that the... Everyone knows that a headline determines how many people will read a news article, particularly in this era of social media. But more interesting, a headline changes the way people read an article and the way they remember it. The headline frames the rest of the experience. Psychologists have long known that first impressions really do matter. What we see, hear, feel, or experience in our first encounter with something colors how we process the rest of it. By drawing attention to certain details or facts, a headline can affect what existing knowledge is activated in your head. Approximately 90% of all media news is negative, according to Cora. On a mass scale, most people tend to complain that the media focuses on negative news. The reason for this could well be evolutionary. For our ancestors to survive, they needed to focus on the negative news that surrounded them. Whether it was an impending storm, a predator approaching, or anything else posing a threat, any negativity could have been life-threatening. With the percentage of negative news stories being approximately 90%, it seems that we still prioritize the negative in the modern world. The financial headlines today have no shortage of negative news. Here are some more, some more recent ones. The 70s horror show. Investors are freaking out about stagflation, a relic of the Carter years, wrote Fortune. Gas prices skyrockets as global energy crisis worsens, says CNN. And one that my daughter would cry over, will U.S. kids get their toys on time? The supply chain dysfunction impacts Christmas. It's easy for these headlines to alter one's view of reality. Our team has developed many catchphrases over the years, and one that we believe is powerful is that over the long run, better information will lead to better outcomes for everyone involved. There are many ways that we gather better information, and one way is updating our chart book on a quarterly basis. The process involves updating nearly 100 slides over a couple of days. For clarification, we update these slides within the quarter as the data becomes available, but we have found that the process of updating them all at once provides us with a very comprehensive view of reality. Not the reality painted on the front pages of the Wall Street Journal. Join myself, Makon Nia, and my colleague Kevin Hedlund, co-chief investment strategist at Mainlife Investment Management, as we discuss what surprised us and what didn't when updating our chart book. Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. My name is Makan Nia, and I'm joined here by my colleague and friend, Kevin Hedlund. Thanks for having me. As if we had any choice, but no problem. <laughs> so Kev, updating the chart book, we have these big updates every quarter. And in the most recent update, one thing that we both noticed was a general slowdown of economic activity across the world. I think we need to differentiate one term specifically that is being thrown around, and that is stagflation. And that's an environment where obviously inflation is increasing, but economic activity is deteriorating very quickly. We would put a spin on that. 
we would say we aren't in a stagflation environment. We are in a slowflation environment where inflation at the margin is increasing, uh, but economic activity is is decreasing, but not at a rate that we should be concerned about. It's slowing down from peak levels that we experienced in the summer, but still in an environment that we think will be positive for earnings and positive for markets going forward. You know, obviously the the rollover of uh, economic data from the bottom last year through the summers you said but one of the things that i think really stuck out surprising to me is is our, our chart on, on copper and and chinese imports uh, so it's on slide 13 and we look at copper from a year-over-year perspective to try and give us some kind of uh, insight as to um, the chinese uh, economic uh, growth story uh, because as they're importing more copper, that is a sign of production, that's a sign of manufacturing. And what we notice in copper prices, year over year, they've actually flatlined. Uh, they hit essentially 0%. Um, and you notice that the imports actually uh, follow the direction of pri- prices. So we expect imports to slow. There's a lot of talk right now about Chinese economic growth uh, slowing down. And this does lend itself to that story. Um, and what we're saying here, though, is we still believe this is likely going to be temporary. There are some shocks uh, that are happening short term um, and it's going to create some some uh, volatility in the market, some choppiness in the market. Uh, it could have contagion impacts uh, on uh, the rest of the world. Uh, but fundamentals longer term uh, seem to still be attractive. Some of this weakness in the Chinese economy is self-induced by policymakers. One of them being that the country was not likely to hit their emission standards. Basically, they told factories that use coal that there has to be these rolling shutdowns. And that has uh, impacted economic activity. Looking forward, we think these electricity shortages and production cuts based on these metrics are going to be more short term. Uh, We saw Chinese economic data come out for their most recent uh, quarter and it was weaker at four and a half. If this trends downwards, the Chinese government will come out and they will allow these these factories to start producing again. And they'll put that energy efficiency campaign on the back burner and put back on the front burner the economic activity. And they've seen a drop of coal imports from Australia, Mongolia. So that's made the shortage uh, worsen. There's a province in China, Shanxi province, where it's about one third of Chinese coal is produced there. And they had a flood, they had a flood hit it. So these are, I think, temporary measures that will be alleviated. And the weakness that we're seeing in the Chinese economy today is likely to be very short term in nature. And I think begin that move upwards again as we enter 2022. So let's transition to the next slide that was of interest to us when we were updating. And this wasn't really an in, uh, one that we updated. It was more so a new one. And this came actually from an advisor question who was trying to uh, compare asset classes. So he wanted to compare the equity market, so S&P 500 to the T- and TSX, to Canadian house prices. Because I'm sure is maybe his clients are saying, why invest in the stock markets when I can invest in the Canadian real estate market? So what we did, and I find this is very interesting to me because uh, as I traveled the country over the past couple of years, I was the last one of all my friends to buy a house. And for those advisors, I would always ask me, have you bought a house? Have you bought a house? 
The answer now is yes. So I bought in November of uh, last year. I thought I had literally timed the market at its peak. And then house prices just continued to roll through Toronto 20%. So this is, it's just, it's, it's madness. But what we did, and this is on page uh, 31 of the chart book. We went back to 2002 and we compared the S&P 500 total return, the TSX total return with the Terranet National House Price Index. And we did a three-year rolling return. And what comes out and what you can tell from really from this chart is the returns for the equity markets on a rolling basis are better, but they come with more volatility. And when you look at the Terranet House Price Index, uh, it has average on a three-year rolling basis anywhere between, let's say, 5% up to 10%. But the returns for equities, depending, and I'm going to highlight both of them, we use averages, have ranged from negative 15. Obviously, this was at the depths of the financial crisis, all the way up to 25%, which was in the 2011-2012. And over the past really five years, they've been averaging 10 to 15%, whereas house prices are averaging 8%. So the reason for this, do I think one asset class is better than the other? No, I think both of them fit a role in, in one's life. Like a house, we have to live in a house where equities don't necessarily take that position. Uh, if for, for me, I think an investor should have both. This goes back to the whole thing of having diversified or don't put your eggs in all, all in one basket. But I think slide 31 is very interesting uh, that one might think, I think the end client might think that Canadian house prices have done better. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Equities have done better uh, as well, and in some instances, better than Canadian house prices. This question comes up all the time. The mindset's it's a short-term bias, I think, uh, by investors thinking that um, when the year-over-year house prices come out uh, and they're you know up twenty percent, they they have a feeling that it's up twenty percent every year, um, and that's not the case, you know. And especially if we, if we roll this back even further, there's periods of time when House prices are absolutely stagnant and actually don't go anywhere for a decade. Um, so I think the way we looked at this from a three-year rolling period makes sense because you're comparing what an, an annualized return would be for a good holding period time frame of three years. Um, and not surprisingly, house prices actually are, are pretty average. They're, they really, are, you know, 5%, that's the long-term average three-year annualized growth rate if you were to look at it, whereas equities... Um, you can actually capture much more upside. But the opportunity of equities is that, um, as we do in our model portfolio, is look at the opportunity and risks and you can move, increase and decrease your equity exposure to protect yourself against risk to the downside and add exposure to the upside. Unfortunately, in the real estate market, it's not as easy to get in and out and, and, and um, adjust your portfolio as well, right? It's, it's, it's a different vehicle. Um, it's definitely advantageous for some, uh, but it's it's not necessarily comparing uh, always apples to apples, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think one reason, I think the misconception about real estate having outsized returns is because of the impact of leverage, right? When you buy a house, there's massive amounts, as I know now, being a homeowner in Toronto, that there is massive amounts of leverage involved in that, whereas equities, typically investors don't lever up to buy stocks. So I think that has also maybe not polluted the mentality towards real estate, but maybe given an outsized return profile versus equities. We talk about leverage and leverage to invest. And as Canadians, we're, we're 
drilled into our mindset that debt is bad, you know, but there actually is good debt. And if you could take debt into mindset of a corporation and say, if I can generate more return on my uh, invested capital, then it's costing me to hold it. So the, the cost of the, the debt, the, uh, the interest rate, then that could actually be good debt, you know, and, and often home prices, uh, homes are seen as a good debt. And, and sometimes it's because you have to live there. Uh, but also sometimes uh, leverage for investments is, is not a bad idea as well, as long as you can cover the cost of capital. So let's transition to rates, top of mind for investors today. So I think you've highlighted two that you, you found particularly interesting. The first one was uh, obviously yields and, and the the direction of the 10-year yield. And we talked about um, inflation. Our team's talked about inflation for for better part of, of a year now. Uh, we've talked about uh, transitory, enduring, persistent, all these different adjectives to, to describe inflation. Rather than a word to describe the inflation, where does inflation end up? And I think that's the key right now is that we don't think inflation remains at 5%. Obviously, it, it's it's been more uh, persistent uh, than a lot of uh, probably investors, uh, even the central banks have, have expected. The supply chain disruptions uh, are much more persistent than expected. Uh, perhaps COVID-induced uh, impact is, is more persistent than expected. But if I look forward to a year, a year and a half out, maybe two years, I fully expect that inflation stays above 2%. And why is that important? The important is that when you look at yields and fixed income returns, there's a term called real yield. And real yield in the simplistic way to look at it is your yield adjusted for inflation. So if your yield is 2.5% and inflation is 2%, your real yield is half a percent, right? It's what you are left over after inflation. And why is that important? Imagine a retiree on a, a fixed income. If they are not earning more than inflation on their investments, then although they think they're not losing money, uh, on a purchasing power basis, they actually are. So the cost of goods every year is greater than their return on investment. It means that inflation is actually eroding their purchasing power and eroding um, their savings. So we have to be cognizant of that. And typically what you see is yields tend to migrate to a pause of real yield. So for example, the long-term average real yield on the US 10-year treasury is 26 basis points or 0.26%. What that means is if inflation is at 2%, the 10-year yield on US treasuries should be around 2.26%. Right now, they're not. Obviously, they're right around 1.5% today, depending on, on when you're looking at it. The idea here is where the trend is happening. Is the balance of risk to the upside or downside? If we as a team fully believe that inflation is going to endure above 2%, the 10-year yield should trend towards above 2% to compensate for inflation and have a pause of real yield. So all this to say, we still believe the trend is higher in the U.S. 10-year treasury yields, higher in the Canadian uh, long uh, end of the curve as well to compensate for that um, enduring inflation above 2%. And we saw this, why it's important in terms of performance. The mainstay asset allocation is 60-40. In the month of September, uh, we had our first monthly loss since January of this year. The biggest 
loss from a 60-40 portfolio since oh, March 2020. And I don't think, I think at that point, it was just the equities did so much worse that brought down the whole 60-40. The reason that this matters and their view for rates is the appeal that the 60-40 strategy rests on, okay, my equities are going to provide me exposure to growth through companies, expanding their earnings, and a smaller slice of that, that 40%, is a stabilizer in my portfolio. So when equities do sell off, typically bond value increase. And we did not see that in September. And I think going forward, not that the magnitude will be as severe, but in a rising rate environment at the margin, fixed income will will be challenged. But there's ways to mitigate that downside, whether it's lowering the duration of a portfolio, increasing the high yield or the floating rate aspect, or even looking at that 40% uh, differently not being your typical Canadian sovereign bonds, but going global. So I think we have seen this manifest itself throughout this year, and it's likely going to continue into 2022 if you are of our team's view, and we are cautiously optimistic going into 2022 because it is likely to have impact on client statements going forward. You bring up a good point there in terms of the 60-40 portfolio, and and, we've received questions for this for, for probably a few years now in terms of, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? And I constantly say no, but you have to look at it differently, as you said. I think that 40% fixed income has to be looked at differently. Um, you need to be flexible and open to different uh, fixing of vehicles and different uh, types of bonds within that 40% to generate the same type of return or downside protection in this new environment. I think opening up your mindset to this and I, I've said it before, and I, I go back to when I started my career, um, and even back when I was in school in the, in the 90s, Canadian, as Canadians investors, we barely had access to global equities. And then eventually that opportunity opened up and, and the, the opportunity set, and I say, you know, the sandbox grew. And you want a bigger sandbox to play in. You want to be able to invest anywhere in the world. And investors embrace that from an equity perspective. And I still think they're they're slowly starting to do it on a fixed income, but not quite. And I think that's something we also have to open ourselves to is, is the the fixing of market globally is bigger than the equity market. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. You just have to be open to the opportunity that exists outside of traditional uh, 40% fixed income and, and the vehicles you use. So let's transition slightly. We believe rates are likely to increase. And I think the fear, and we've seen it manifest itself in headlines over the past six weeks, is rising interest rates, likelihood to impact consumer spending, impact borrowing, impact, let's say, fixed income uh, market. However, uh, one metric that we look at um, which is the Chicago Fed National Financial Condition Credit Subindex. It's a lot of words, uh, but it's basically, it, um, it aggregates a whole host of credit uh, metrics that the Fed, the Federal Reserve pays very close attention to. Uh, and I think this is interesting. And Kev, maybe you want to talk to this in terms of despite rates increasing, is it easier today or harder today to borrow money if you were either a U.S corporation or a American consumer. Yeah, this is on slide 56 and, and it's important. And, and as Makan, you alluded to, rates are increasing. Uh, we fully believe that when we say rates are increasing, we are talking about 
um, the longer end of the yield curve, um, you know, call it seven years out on the yield curve. We don't see a uh, Federal Reserve overnight rate increase um, in the near term, although they are expecting to, to start to taper their asset purchases. And when they taper their asset purchases or reduce uh, their monthly asset purchases, it is going to reduce some of the liquidity in the marketplace and credit conditions could tighten a little bit, but we don't believe they're going to over tighten, shall I mean, you know, get too tight where there's not enough liquidity out there. Right now, credit conditions are, are quite attractive, you know, maybe less attractive than they were um, last year, but there's no reason to be fearful as they still remain quite easy. And, and we think about it um, broadly, look at, you know, a corporation uh, that needs capital. There is still a lot of demand out there um, from, from the capital markets for income. And there's still demand for fixed income. And so when the companies go to market and, and trying to raise capital and they're, they're looking to issue uh, fixed income, uh, there's still a lot of opportunities there. No one's worried really about default rates and an improving economic environment. There's very low uh, risk there. And that's where the credit conditions remain quite easy is because people still need income um, and believe that there's a little risk uh, from a corporation perspective. And when you're talking about the credit conditions in terms of, of consumers, that's still quite widely available. You know, bank loan growth is starting to increase. Um, we actually uh, had uh, numerous banks uh, announced recently um, that their loan growth is improving. As consumers feel better about their environment, feel better about their jobs, um, they're more at ease uh, to take on additional debt. And I think that's uh, also a sign that the economy is improving. The one thing I saw recently was uh, credit card debt has increased. Now, of course, that is something to pay close attention to, to make sure that the credit card debt levels do not get too high because that becomes a risk, but at least it does show uh, a willingness to spend from a U.S. consumer, um, and that is a, a positive sentiment uh, in the near term. We're very early in this earnings season in North America, but we've got so far some very, very positive developments stateside from the financial earnings that have been very strong. So that typically is a very good indicator of the health of the overall economy. And when I look at page 56, you'll notice in our charts, any one of these gray vertical lines are recessions. And we get asked the questions, what are things that you pay attention to to gauge the odds of a recession over the next year? And one of the things we look at is this, and you see prior to these recessionary periods, credit conditions get tight. So when they go above zero, it means it's tighter. And you see every time it happens and where we are today, historically, it's, it's never happened where credit conditions have been this accommodative and we end up in a recession. So let's transition to the last slide. I, I really like slides like this, and I think these are much more tangible to the end client for advisors to use. And that's on page 43. And this is a newer uh, research piece done by Kevin and I. And what we did essentially is, okay, if markets sell off, what do I do? Right? Is there a secret formula that we can use uh, when markets sell off? So what we did and what this chart is highlighting on page 43 is we look back at the S&P 500 since 1970. And we said, okay, if markets are off, and this is how to read this table, on the far left, minus 5% to minus 10%. And then you see the next area is minus 10% to minus 15. The next one is minus 15 to minus 20. And then greater than losses of minus 20%. And I just closed my eyes and I bought. 
how did I do from a one year forward basis? And we've highlighted three periods. The green is all periods. The red is you get these sell-offs and it's a recessionary environment. And then that turquoise looking color is markets are off, but we're not in a recession. They're selling off for whatever the flavor of that sell-off is. And the thing that sticks out to me is every time you do get a pullback, whether it's the five to 10 in any one of those, if it's in a non-recessionary environment, then you buy because the odds are overwhelmingly on your side that on a one-year forward basis that you are going to be positive. And the team is, Kevin and I are putting together an investment note right now in terms of what we look at from a recession perspective. And there's a whole host of metrics we look at, whether it's credit conditions, manufacturing, employment, housing, I could go on and on. And right now we would still say, despite a slowing of the global economy and the US economy, we're still growing at a very positive clip. So we uh, we think that the odds of a recession are still remain quite low. I think the one risk that we are following very closely is the price of oil. Uh, because historically, when you do get these spike up in oil, it has been an impact on the consumer and corporations. And we've seen oil prices shoot up 30%, I think, since the middle of August. Now, if we were taping this podcast at the end of December and oil prices had shot up above 100 I think we would take a much more cautious view. But as of today at $80, we don't think that the odds have increased materially. And ultimately, when we look at the state global players in the oil market as well, the OPEX of the world, they don't want an oil price above 100 because they know that that's going to induce a recession. And oil prices go back from 100 down to whatever, $30, $40 or even lower probably. Uh, so they're they're kind of in the sweet spot right now. And I think that they, when you hear from them, uh, that seems to be the message. So page 43, I think is a very good slide if and when we do get a pullback uh, to show your clients in terms of maybe increasing their equity weights or using some of that cash on the sideline uh, to get into equities. During recessions, if it's more than a 5% pullback, the average return is still less than 1% or so. Average one year forward return is less than one half of a percent. So for those clients who've been sitting on the sidelines and, and waiting for a better time to, to invest, a, a pullback, it's important to show them that anytime there's a 5% or more pullback, it makes sense to add money to the markets as long as you have a, a, at least a 12 month forward outlook um, or time horizon. It, it's just one of those things that reevaluate and, and uh, show clients that you don't need a, a 10% or even a 20% sell-off, even a 5% pullback. A little bit of, of volatility is a good opportunity to put money in and um, dollar cost averaging works really great for this because it captures these types of, of um, opportunities um, without having to, to put money to work as soon as it happens, right? Um, we've, we've said this before, everyone knows this, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. Um, and uh, this is definitely something that, that advisors uh, should show their clients and, and just use it as a tool to say, listen, you wait for this, here it is. We got it at September 30th, I think we had a, um, a 5% pullback. And that was the first one we've seen in a while. And how many people put money to work? Probably not many because there's so many headline risks out there right now that people are expecting a bigger pullback. There's something bigger coming. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, and it's important to when things do happen, even if it's a, a small pullback, uh, put money to work in and make sure it's uh, you're not waiting for that 20% that pullback because those bear markets are rare.
Yes, and there's no shortages on the front pages of the of the newspapers in terms of reasons to be pessimistic. Newspapers? What are those? <laughs> uh, funny enough. Well, Kevin, when was the last time you picked up a newspaper? Uh, I think when I was camping so I could start a fire. That's actually, I think that is mine. I used it as a basically fire starter for the fireplace. But let's, okay, let me rephrase that. There's no shortages on the websites uh, in terms of reasons to be pessimistic. And they range from the reemergence or the emergence of Delta peak growth, seasonality, debt ceiling, China slowdown. And when we updated the, when we're up, when we updated a chart book, uh, there's no doubt economic activity across the world is slowing from the pace that we were experiencing during the summer. But we were, I think it's also important to note that we are growing at probably unattainable or unachievable or yeah, unattainable rates of growth in the summer. So we are coming back down, but we're still, I think it's important to highlight that we're still growing at a clip or a pace that is going to be very positive for employment. It's going to be positive for housing. It's going to be positive for earnings. And that will be positive. These are generally things that lead to an environment that is constructive for equities over the one-year time horizon. I think that's the biggest takeaway I took and maybe caveat maybe what you pulled away from it but yes things are slowing but very simplistically things are slowing but they're still good and there's no reasons to be fearful of the environment as of today over the next year it's completely normal playbook coming out of recession you know we've written about this in the past we've talked about the three phases um, of, a, of a bear market and recovery this is the third phase. You know, we call it the exhaustion phase before. Um, but I also characterize this environment as a normalization phase. You, you talked about it. We were, these are unsustainable levels of growth, but it's it's because of the, the benchmark and the, the hurdle rate is so low in the bottom of a recession that, of course, you're going to grow quickly and then you're going to normalize. And that's what we're seeing right now is this normalization phase. And as you said, it's still positive equities. We just have to readjust our expectations. Do we think we're going to get a 20% return over the next 12 months in equities? Probably not. Possible. It's always possible, but not necessarily probable. Do we think equities are going to outperform fixed income? Very likely. That's why ultimately the end goal of our chart book is to use all these charts, all this research to come to our model portfolio. And we have not made any changes to our model portfolio 6535 slightly overweight equities while we don't think it's it's a it's a bang the table type environment like yeah lump in equities chase risk it's not the environment but it's also not the environment to be risk off either uh, so i think it's a good opportunity to, to be slightly overweight equities uh, but also readjust uh, expectations for returns over the next 12 months great way to summarize it and i think within the fixed income as well we have selected mandates that we believe can navigate a rising rate environment, whether they're shorter duration, whether they have an increase in high yield or floating rate. So I think that's important too, that you're going to hold fixed income. There's ways to mitigate the potential downside. So with that, Kev, I thought that was good. I want to give a shout out to, to our, the man behind the scenes, uh, Peter Ward, who without his magic, this is not possible. This would probably be non-existent to be quite honest. So uh, giving Peter a nice shout out. I know he's a Newcastle fan 
and his team just got bought out. So he's very excited with all that money that his team's going to be paying off players going forward. So Peter, shout out to you. Thank you so much for all the work you do. Without, without you, this would not be possible. So thank you. And thank you for all of you for listening. So Peter is important, but the audience is as important. And without you listening in every couple of weeks, uh, this would not be possible as well. So we thank you very much for all the positive feedback and kind words that you've shared with us over the past couple of months. And uh, with that, let's end it off there, Kev. Kev, thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. And and back to those listeners. uh, If you uh, enjoy the podcast, please rate us. Um, We joke, if you don't like the podcast, don't rate us at all. uh, Because the more... Five stars we have, the better it is for us and the better it is for, to show up for those looking for like-minded podcasts as well. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. So with that, I'm Mark Arnia. And Kevin Hedlund. And thank you for listening to Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice. It does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Any Manulife funds mentioned are available to Canadian investors only. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede KYC, Know Your Client, Suitability, Needs Analysis, or any other regulatory requirements and is intended for Canadian advisors.